The Bronx has been experiencing a development boom in recent years, with a number of projects sprouting up across the borough, from new hotels to shopping malls. But it was only a few decades ago when arson fires, rampant crime, and poverty made the borough a national symbol of urban decay. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're revisiting the Bronx in different eras, starting with a time when stickball ruled the streets and the candy store was a favorite neighborhood hangout. Author Avery Corman grew up in the Bronx in the 1940s and 50s. Corman has written several books, including Kramer vs. Kramer. His latest work is a memoir titled My Old Neighborhood Remembered. Avery, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Pleasure, pleasure. So where in the Bronx did you grow up? Well, I grew up not far from Fordham University in what we then called the Concourse Fordham area. Uh, There seem to be different designations now, but I lived uh, on the Grand Concourse in a small street a block and a half from the Lowe's Paradise Theater. So you grew up in an apartment building, not a private house, right? Well, there were few apartment houses in that area. Yes, I did grow up in an apartment building. How well do you remember that building? Well, very well. and As a matter of fact, Uh, I've gone back to it a couple of times, and recently uh, I put together a video, which is up on YouTube, and I shot it at different locations, and we shot right in front of the building. So it's one of the uh, paradoxes about you can get older and older, but your neighborhood seems to be still standing. Every building, every single storefront, although the stores are different, is exactly the same as when I moved there in the 1940s. Does that surprise you? It does, because we've all read about the changes in the Bronx. We know about the decline in the 60s and 70s and the Bronx's burning era. But what's happened where I grew up is that everything's exactly as it was. When you walk along, as I have done, walk from my elementary school on the route back to my apartment house and then to junior high school, everything is exactly as it was. What would you say defined the Bronx in your growing up years of the 40s and 50s? Well, I think you cannot minimize in the early stage of it how important World War II was in our lives. I think it was defining in that we children were children of the home front during World War II. And it's very hard to communicate to people who aren't my age just how pervasive the war was in all of our lives. We were surrounded by it on all sides, by the imagery. All of the billboards showed soldiers, and you'd see an ad for uh, cigarettes, for example, and it would be a soldier smoking a cigarette. The recruiting stations, the parades that were held each year, the bunting, the posters, the rationing, the shortages. And I think what it did do contributed to a sense of community. It was almost like you were living in the Bronx, but your neighborhood was like a small town in America. So I would say that was important. The other thing that might have defined it were the street games. When we were growing up, we were out on the street all the time, and I've been back many times in recent years, and I don't know if it's because of television. Part of my childhood was pre-television or before video games. Before homework, actually. I don't remember getting much homework in school. But we were out on the streets all the time, and now I've walked around these old neighborhoods, and kids just don't play stickball and and punch ball 
and skip rope and play tag and Johnny on the Pony. Uh, we did a lot of, of activity out on the street. So those were two, two elements, the war and the street games. And I think it contributed to a sense of community, that we belong to something, that we belong to each other, and we belong to this neighborhood. Your parents, Avery, divorced when you were pretty young, right? They, yes, actually pretty young. I, I, I have no recollection of my father. How common was that in the Bronx during that time well, period? Well, I don't think I, I knew of another family where the, where the parents were divorced. It was very uncommon. Uh, my father uh, left before my fifth birthday, and I never saw him again. People who know that I wrote the novel Kramer versus Kramer, many of them have assumed that I was writing about my divorce and custody battle. If anything, that was a conduit to that story it was the fact that I was a child of divorce, and it was very, very rare then. Now, later in life, you sought out your father, right? I did. When I was about uh, the father of a child about the same age as my father, that I was when my father left, I was now a father myself, I decided maybe we would have something in common, and I hired a private detective to try to find him. I heard he was living in California, but I was unsuccessful. Uh, I learned that he had uh, died a few years before. For a time, your family shared living space with your aunt and uncle, who you describe as deaf-mutes. What do you remember most about them? Well, what I remember most was their ability to communicate. Uh, I know we've used different uh, expressions to to describe disabled people in that manner. We did refer to them then as deaf-mutes, and that that was the current standard for for describing them. What I remember most was just how well they communicated. The sign language they used, the signing was much more explicit than the kind of signing that you see on television simulcasts, which uses a lot of, uh, let's say, expressions or waving of hands and arms to describe words. They spelled everything out letter for letter. They used some of what was then known as shorthand, these words, let's say, dawn or sunrise. But they would spell out S-U-N-R-I-S-E. So everything was very explicit. And I thought they were geniuses at communicating. They really got their messages across. A lot of people today hang out at the local Starbucks, maybe the Dunkin' Donuts. During your day in the Bronx, it was the candy store, huh? It was, and uh, the candy store was where you got everything. It It was an amazing... Uh, institution. It ranged from a tiny little hole in the wall, which just served a few drinks, to some of the more elaborate ones that served food. And and one of the entertaining things when you think back about candy stores, some of them always had a resident bookkeeper. A book, I started to say bookkeeper, that was cleaning it up. A bookmaker. And there was a lot of betting in the old neighborhood in those days. I think it went with, with working class life. Uh, people looking to get an edge up. So there was a, a scurrying around on uh, the night before, people getting early editions of the Daily News and Daily Mirror to get the charts to bet on races the next day. And there was a lot of betting on basketball. There, there was betting on boxing. Boxing was very big. There was just a lot of betting, and the bookies were there and hung out in the candy stores, and people wanted a place to bet and knew where to find them. How different demographically is your old neighborhood compared to what it's like today? 
Well, I'm not exactly sure on the numbers today, so I can only tell you what it was like then. And if we're talking about specifically my neighborhood, which, which let's loosely say running from about 181st Street and the Grand Concourse, which is close to where my junior high school was, running north to where my elementary school was, up to about the Grand Concourse and Fordham Road, it was about 50% Jewish and 50% Irish Catholic with some Italian-American Catholics thrown into the mix as well. Uh, it's, it's been interesting over the years. Uh, people have talked to me about the Bronx, and many of them have the feeling that the Bronx was primarily Jewish, which it, it absolutely was not, certainly not where I lived. And there was St. Simon Stock. There was St. Nicholas of Tallentine. Kids that I knew went to All Hallows. They went, they went to Cardinal Hayes. You had Fordham University. So uh, it was pretty much half and half Catholic and Jewish in those days. Did you go to college in the Bronx as well, or just up to uh, high school and moved on? Uh, I went to Clinton High School, and then I went to uh, uh, NYU downtown, and I would travel from the Bronx to school each day. You moved from the Bronx to Manhattan when you were in your early 20s, and you have a girl to thank for greasing that transition, right? Yes, I did. Well, I was getting a little embarrassed about still living at home. I was 24, and I thought I should be out. And I just kept thinking, well, I'll get the money together, and I'll do this. Uh, Most of the people I knew when we moved out into our own apartments did not take on roommates. And I think that was a function of the fact that so few of us went to out-of-town colleges where we got the concept of roommates. So when we got enough money together to get an apartment, we usually moved into an apartment by ourselves. And I was waiting to do that. And I was on one of the innumerable cheap dates I went on in my life in those years. I convinced a girl that it was a good thing to do to wander around the Central Park Zoo at night and see if any of the animals were about and we were necking in front of the polar bears, and she said, you know, if you had your own apartment, we could go there now. And I think I was gone from the Bronx almost immediately. Yep, I guess girls will do it any time, right? <laughs> That's right. A lot of New Yorkers, Avery, have their favorite pizza places. For you, it was Paradise Pizzeria in the Bronx, and you say you still carry the Paradise Pizza memory with you. Now, that must have been some pretty good pizza. It, well, it was like our stork club. That was the first thing about it. It was a social place. It was where you went on a date after you went to the Lowe's Paradise or the Ascot Theater on a, on a date with a girl. If you wanted to be seen with her, you would take her there because everybody could check you out. But what's become known as New York pizza uh, is much cheesier. And sometimes in Manhattan loaded with cheese and very little taste of the tomato. You hear it as I'm describing this. I'm remembering it all over again. But the, the Paradise Pizza was held in balance. It was a, some cheese. You got the tomato taste. And, and that, was what, that was my imprint for pizza. Every pizza I eat now, I'm comparing to what my childhood pizza was. That, again, must have been some very good pizza to do that. No question about that. Right. I get the sense that Bronxites, when you were a kid, viewed the Bronx Zoo differently than locals do today. Do you think that's the case? Well, I don't know, because we just did include it into our lives. We never, ever thought that the Bronx Zoo was a place for tourists. It was our zoo. 
and and we felt on certain days it was a zoo day. We would say it just felt like a day to go to the zoo. We went to the zoo a lot, which is which is kind of interesting because sometimes people just take for granted something that is meant for tourists, but we never felt it was meant for tourists. We just went to the zoo all the time. We would take the well, my very early days, there were still trolleys on Fortimo, so I was taken. But then we would just go, and the, the, a big day in your life was if you took a date to the Bronx Zoo, because that meant you were, you were sophisticated enough to be walking around with a girl during the day. Sounds like the Bronx Zoo was almost like our malls of today, hanging out the mall, hanging out at the Bronx Zoo. Yes, well, we, we just liked to walk around. It was, it was great. Before we let you go, Avery, I want you to share one of my favorite stories in this memoir, and that is the story of the talking dog, the first celebrity you ever saw, you say. Well, I'm going to do this, so I get a chance to do this on radio now. This is a true story, and people may find it hard to believe. You have to understand, this is before David Letterman and stupid pet tricks and things like that, where um, people can, can now contort their dogs into sounding like speech. So this is probably what was going on. But a group of kids around my block were were jumping up and down. I walked over, and there was a guy with a German Shepherd. And he said to the dog, what do you want? And the dog growled unmistakably, want a humbugger. And he said, what? Humbugger. And he repeated it again, and then he walked away. We were hysterical. We'd never seen anything like it. And that would have been the end of the talking dog story, Except a couple of weeks later, I'm listening to the radio, one of the talent shows today, and a guy is introduced with a talking dog, and it's the, it's the same guy. And he <laughs> says to the dog on the radio, what do you want? The dog says, want a humbugger. He says, what? Humbugger. And that was the guy's entire act. He went off to big applause. He's a talking dog, and I, and I do call him the first celebrity I ever saw. Well, that is one of the many great stories in this memoir, My Old Neighborhood Remembered. Avery Corman, thank you so much for taking the time. A great pleasure. Thank you so much. Avery Corman is a Bronx native. He's the author of several books, including Kramer vs. Kramer. His latest work is a memoir titled My Old Neighborhood Remembered. It's out now from Barricade Books. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. In the 1970s and 80s, the Bronx took a turn for the worse. Arson fires, rampant crime, and poverty made the borough a national symbol of urban decay. Photographer Stephen Shames remembers that time period very well. He started photographing the Bronx in 1977 for Look magazine, documenting a group of boys coming of age in a neighborhood ravaged by drugs, violence, and gangs. But even after the magazine folded, Shames returned to the area to take photographs for another 20-plus years. His work is now the focus of a new book called Bronx Boys. Stephen Shames, welcome to Cityscape. Oh, thank you for having me. We are right now not too far away from where you took the photographs in this book, correct? That's correct. It's just um, on the other side of the campus. What brought you to the Bronx back then? Originally, I I came to a different neighborhood in the Bronx. Uh, I um, came up for Look Magazine, which um, got folded and then got briefly re- resurrected and then folded again. 
John Derniak was the managing editor, and he had previously been the photo editor of Time magazine, was a pretty big editor in the photo field. And he asked me to do a piece on the Bronx. Um, I guess it was just after President uh, Carter had come up and, and stood in front of all the vacant buildings, and there was a little bit of interest what was going on. So I actually went to Tremont Avenue and took the picture that's in the cover of the book of, of that little boy, Ralph. Jumping uh, between jumping buildings. between the two buildings. And anyway, the next day, look folded for for good for the second time. Um, but I was hooked. I, that, I think that's maybe the best picture I ever took in my whole career. A lot of people think that that's my iconic image. And you um, photographed these young men for a course of 20-some-odd years, right? That's correct. Why but, did you stick with them for so long after the project under Look folded? To me, it was it just became a personal project. And it was really interesting to actually watch the transition as these kids grew up. In the nineteen in nineteen eighty two, I started in nineteen seventy seven. In nineteen eighty two, heroin started coming back in, and then later crack came back in. So it was a very interesting period, not only in New York. That was a period when New York, um, you, you know, nineteen seventy six was. If you remember the the Daily News cover where uh, you know Ford to the city drop, drop dead. dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a period when New York was kind of in decline, and there were drugs here. There was extreme poverty. Abandoned buildings were getting burned down. Landlords were burning down abandoned buildings for insurance money. Um, I spent a little bit of time riding around with the police. I mean, it was really kind of like the Wild West up here for movie Fort Apache, the Bronx. Um, Obviously, most people in the Bronx were law-abiding citizens. Um, It's like that everywhere. You know, uh, um, 90% of the people are always just kind of quietly go and lead their lives, and it's that other 10%. What what are they doing that kind of forms the, the consensus of what's going on? But it was a period within the popular imagination. This was a a pretty wild period up here, and I guess that was attractive to me. The second thing that really intrigued me about the Bronx was the fact that the kids formed a family for themselves. They, They called it a crew, but they really made themselves a family and brought each other up. And they showed love to each other, and they looked out for each other. And that family, I think, was really the reason that I stayed the 20 years. That being said, what was their real family life like? Well, some of them had 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 uh um didn't know their parents, some of them didn't know their parents. Some of their parents were, you know, the the sad thing about poor communities is that the parents who are working hardest to provide for their children's future have the least time to spend with their kids. So their kids actually spend the most time on the streets because some of the parents were working two and three jobs. So they were just exhausted. By the time they got home, they, were, they weren't there. I mean, they, they brought the money home and they were trying to look after the kids. Um, other parents, some of the kids in the book, you can read Martin's story. Some of the kids in the, the parents of the kids in the book were drug addicts. So it was a wide, it was really a wide mixture, but the parents really weren't there. There's a photograph in the book that is really quite alarming of a young boy having his arm injected. He's getting someone shooting him up. That particular kid uh, named Dell. 
Um, actually, his mother had died when he was, he was 15 in that picture. His mother died when he was 13, and he was actually just staying all over the place. I mean, he, there was a pool hall owner who let him sleep on the pool table after the pool hall closed. There was an abandoned building. There's some pictures in the book inside. There's an abandoned building that the kids made a clubhouse out of, and he kind of stayed there. But he didn't really have a home. He had a grandmother, but she was not really, you know, I guess a little bit out of it. Um, so he was really just living on the street. How did you come to know these kids? Just by being on the block. So you just came to the Bronx and you looked for kids and started to photograph them? Well, I no, I originally met um, Ralph and his brother Tony and his mom. When you're a photographer, you just walk around and you meet people. And sometimes, most, you know, most of the time people accept you. And if they accept you, then they invite you back. And it's a slow process. You start on the street. You get into their homes. You just spend time hanging out and... Um, just observing and just photographing and becoming part of their life. Did you have to earn their trust in order to do that? Was there skepticism? Here is this white guy walking into a largely Latino and black community. You know, people always bring that up, and I, with all due respect, it's usually white people who bring it up. Black people and Latino people never ask me that question. And I think that there's a couple of things. When you're a photographer, that's what you do. And secondly, I, I think the black community and the Latino community are much are very welcoming and very open. I think they've been under a lot of stress historically and there's a lot of poverty and, and they're just very welcoming to, to strangers and, and to outsiders. I think in the Latino community, there's a lot of immigrants, a lot of people who weren't born in America. So I think they're just used to inviting people in and not asking a lot of questions. Who are you? Where were you? You know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. they, they just welcome, if you're a human being, you're a human being, and they, they just welcome you. And I think that's a real strength in the community. And I, I never found myself un, unwelcome. But they knew you were photographing them for a project, for a magazine. Right. That's what they knew. No, they knew the pictures were going to be published. People just were open. This was their life. And they... They just they allowed me in and and uh, I mean I, I you know as I know it seems strange to other people but as a photographer I mean I've been a photographer going on fifty years in 2016 is going to be fifty years and that's just my life I I just go any place in the world and you meet people and you just kind of become part of their their lives sometimes i i think it's almost like star trek i don't know if you remember that but when i was you know younger that was a very popular television show and the idea was they would get in their spaceship and go to some alien world and have a little adventure and become part of it and then move on and that's in a sense what you do as a photojournalist you go someplace you insert yourself in, into their lives, become part of it. If you're good at it, you become part of their lives because that's how you get the good pictures too. And that's also how you understand it. And then you just do your pictures. And, and if you do a good job, the people in the neighborhood accept the pictures and, and believe that they're, that they're honest. And that's my experience with Bronx Boys. Is it hard not to intervene, though, as a photographer when you see a teenage boy shooting up 
Yes and no. I mean, first of all, if you're a photographer, that's what you're doing. And if you're, I mean, I think most photographers, myself included, do intervene, but it isn't always necessarily number one that you stop the pictures or you stop the activity that's going on when you're taking pictures. You might talk to, I, I, I spent a lot of time with Dell, actually, and you might talk to him later. Secondly, just because you talk to him, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to stop doing what he's doing. I mean, as with any intervention, I mean, I know parents with their own kids find that sometimes they can't stop their kids from drinking or smoking marijuana, even though they have talks with them. So that's just that's just life. But the fact of the matter is I did, and I most photographers that I know, I know most of the, you know, world-class photojournalists, you know, Jim Nockway and all those people, they, they do intervene. We, we intervene all the time, and we talk to people, and we help people, and maybe you encourage someone to go back to school. But the, the idea that we're like, you know, I think this is kind of an American idea that kind of gets into foreign policy, too, the idea that we're superheroes, and we can go to Iraq and make them into a democracy, that I can come up to the Bronx and magically change everybody on, on the whole block and they won't be poor anymore and that there won't be drugs in the block. I mean, I think that that idea is just a false idea. I think as an individual, you do have a certain amount of power, but you can't just walk in. I, someone like me can't just walk into a neighborhood and go, okay, stop shooting up. You stop doing this. You, I mean, you can't. What then were you hoping to accomplish by spending all of this time with these young men taking their photographs? Well, it wasn't necessarily to change their lives. What you hope to accomplish as a photographer, as an artist, is to create a statement. I mean, what did Picasso hope to accomplish by making a painting? You know, his painting Guernica. Did that stop the Spanish Civil War? No, but it was his comment on it. And sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes... All you can do is you can make a comment and it sits there historically. Maybe my book will outlast the poverty and despair of, of the Bronx and become a lasting statement of not only poverty and despair, but also human survival and the human ability. Pancho actually said this. We were on a, a, a radio show recently and Pancho said, you know, we created beauty out of this. And that's what humans do. You know, and, and so in a sense that, that I see this as, as a poetic statement, as a poetic artistic statement of human ingenuity of these young men who got dealt a very bad hand by society, who really didn't care. You know, and it wasn't, you know, earlier you talked about their parents. It really wasn't their parents that were their big problems in their lives. It was society. It was the fact that, for whatever reason, drugs were openly being sold, the fact that their parents had very menial jobs in most cases, the fact that, that the police kind of picked on them. Did any of these kids not survive the harshness of their surroundings? Oh, a lot of them didn't. How did someone like Poncho survive? He's tough, and he really just... Um, some a little bit of luck and a little bit of having a vision that he wanted to do something else. 
Um, I think that the women had a lot to do with it. I think in both Martin and Pancho's case, they were able to find a girlfriend who later became their wife, who was very tough and basically said to them, my way or the highway. I mean, I, I don't want you dead. I don't want you in jail. Pancho and Martin were not heavy. They were not dealing drugs. So I think from the very beginning, maybe they made the choices that they they saw that that was a death trap. And in fact, most of the people who ended up really getting involved in the drugs got killed. Did you ever find yourself in a dangerous situation while you were out there photographing? I guess. You don't really think about it. I mean, you're just there. And I, I felt very safe on the block because most of the people on the block actually protected me. Um, they would look out for me. Stephen James, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you for having me. That was photographer Stephen Shames. His book, Bronx Boys, is out now from University of Texas Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show information and New York City tidbits. You'll find us on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Knoll. Have a great weekend. WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.